welcome to the Fair Folk Podcast. I'm Danica Boyce. This is Children of the Sun, Paganism and Folk Song in Lithuania. This episode, in two parts, is the product of a month I spent in Lithuania in 2018 among folk singers and pagans at workshops, gatherings, and as a guest in living rooms and kitchens, catching a fleeting and sometimes dizzying glimpse of the depth of tradition and folk music in this country on the Baltic Sea. This episode is about paganism and folk song, both, since in Lithuania the two are more closely related than in most other places in Europe. Lithuanian folk song contains a wealth of coded information about how ancient Baltic peoples saw nature, human connection, the calendar, and the cosmos. Folk song and music also plays a key role in pagan reconstruction and practice, as this material provides a main ingredient in the rituals performed by Lithuanian pagans today. Of course, folk song is not exclusive to the pre-Christian era in any place, and songs, along with values, do change over time. But as I was told many times over the course of my month in this country, Lithuania was the last nation in Europe to convert to Christianity. And unlike many Western European nations, Lithuania's folk song heritage has been remarkably well-preserved, with an abundance of pagan themes and motifs intact. So when I arrived in Lithuania, I hoped to learn a lot about folk music and paganism both. I wanted to know, how do people maintain and revive the spiritual and ritual traditions of the deep past? How does paganism work here? Lithuanians, I'd heard, were doing a remarkably good job at it, and I wanted to see exactly what that looked like. Ultimately, among the many communities, sacred sites, and even cultural differences I came across, my primary encounter turned out to be with tradition itself, and a budding uncertainty about what that word even means. It's the old things that people do, the old stories we tell, the old songs we sing, right? I found that it isn't as simple as that. Tradition exists and is sustained by communities. But in an age of nation-states, of digital connection, of displacement and disconnection from place, what does community even mean? And importantly, in this world of too many options, and somehow not enough, how do we determine where, exactly, we sincerely belong? Here's the story of a month I spent traveling in Lithuania that was much more involved, more varied, and definitely more political than I had anticipated at first. In this short period of time, I'll learn things that will make me question my whole motivation for traveling here in the first place. I will meet people and places that break me open and make me forget everything I thought I knew about folklore and paganism both. So let's begin. It's mid-August, and after a few days of getting settled in Vilnius, the country's medieval capital city, I drive a couple of hours northeast into the country to an event that has been a highlight in my imagination for months, called Romava Camp. This camp is a yearly event held by the Lithuanian pagan religious group called Romava, where families and young people gather for ritual, song, and traditional crafts, as well as talks on Lithuanian mythology, folklore, and identity. 
turning left off a narrow dirt road. I pass small farmhouses, fields, and forest, and I finally park my rental car on a large, grassy property on the edge of a small lake. I walk up the hill to a dark green farmhouse, surrounded by yellow flowers in bloom, and I'm greeted by a young woman in historical dress who tells me to place my tent wherever I like. It's a beautiful, warm day, and I walk around the grounds a while, taking it all in. There are a number of old log farmhouses and barns on the property, at the center of which stands a circle of large grey stones. Everywhere I turn, there are ancient apple trees, dripping their August fruit into the deep grasses all around. I clear some from the ground and set up my tent among the trees not far from the main house. Ramava is the largest pagan religious group in the country, and certainly the highest profile. The high priestess, Inia Trincuniene, invited me to this camp by email some months before when I asked if I could interview her. She is also the head of the pagan folk group Kolgrinda, who draw on the deep well of Lithuanian ancient singing tradition, and are well known for their polyphonic chants and performances in Iron Age garb. Their colorful and deeply affecting ceremonial concerts have become iconic of Baltic paganism around the world. It's August 15th. The herbs are fragrant in the grass, and flowers and fruit burst forth all around us at the edge of the lake. We stand in a circle around a large boulder with a depression in its top. Stones like this one have been found all over the Lithuanian landscape, artifacts from pagan times when archaeologists guessed they were used in rituals like this one. Today is the holiday called Jolines, which literally translates as Grass Day, but is, I understand, a celebration of the plant kingdom at the height of its potency. I have spent the afternoon with other young women gathering brightly colored flowers to make into wreaths, which we all wear on our heads now adding to the lavish spectacle of this nature celebration. While they sing the chant Duno Upe, an ancient tribute to sacred waterways, one by one we approach this large stone and ritually cleanse our hands or faces in water freshly poured over the depression in the top.
we process to the temple, a small log building, entering under crossed horse heads surmounting the building's gable roof. Along the walls stand tall wooden poles carved into blocky representations of the gods, the bearded creator god at the center. In the middle of the sand floor, there is a fire burning steadily on a stone altar. This fire will burn for the duration of the camp, representing the sacredness of fire in pre-Christian Lithuanian belief. We pack into the temple, many of us standing on benches against the walls, and Inia, the high priestess, leads everybody in a chant to the goddess of fire and the hearth, Gabia. The force of our voices together in that space is so powerful, I can feel it resonating in my chest. While we sing, Inia makes offerings to the fire of salt and of amber. The salt is apparently a traditional offering, and amber, which is everywhere on the Baltic coast, appears often in Lithuanian myth. It makes the flame leap and sparkle dramatically, as if ecstatic to receive the offering. The realm of the rituals I participated in that week were abundant in songs. You could almost say that the rituals were built of songs, the words and gestures practically an afterthought. And this is because, at their root, these songs preserve rich data about what pagan Lithuanians of the past valued and worshipped, and the melodies, many of them in essence time travelers from the pre-Christian era, are a near direct line to what the deep past sounded like and maybe even what it felt like. The next song we sing at the Jolines ritual belongs to a family of pre-Christian songs that are typically sung in the season of Advent, many of them with the refrain Lelumoi. It's clear these Advent Lelumoi songs predate Christianity, since although they are sung just before Christmas, they make no reference at all to Jesus. In fact, most of the lyrics refer to animal or human fertility, and many others herald the return of the midwinter sun on the horns of a mythical stag which you might imagine speaks to a very old belief indeed. I'm told the word lelemoi, repeated so often in these pagan advent songs, cannot be defined. People have their theories, of course, but the original sense of the word is lost to history. This version of the song speaks of a beautiful manor of gold and silver where a young woman's father has gone to, which I am told represents the afterlife.
As we sing together this song about the pagan afterlife, we each offer a small handful of amber dust to the fire and head out into the day to gather around the stone circle in the afternoon sun. A young man lights a fire in the center of the ring on a low altar of piled stones, where a large loaf of rye bread is arrayed with apples from the orchard, baked goods, oak leaves, flowers, and beer. The priestess, her white and red robes glowing in the daylight, lowers herself and presses her palms to the ground, singing a prayer to the earth goddess, Jemina. We all follow, crouching to the ground, and a heavy rain begins splashing from above and darkening the sky. Moments later, as we dance in a circle around the fire, the sun suddenly breaks through the clouds, and every drop of rain becomes a jewel, sparkling as if lit from within. The excitement of the crowd rises. People begin to smile and to laugh. To our rain-flecked rapture, a broad, shining rainbow stretches in the sky above us. In Baltic paganism, the rainbow is a colorful belt, belonging to one of the Lauma, the goddesses who determine human fates. Likewise, in the Christian Noah's Ark story, rainbows signify a contract between the god of the sky and the mortals on earth. The reason rainbows hold such a sense of enchantment for people then and now, is that in connecting the counterparts of earth and heaven, human and divine, of water and fire, they affect a fusion of opposites and produce a hinge, a juncture, in the midst of time's flow that says, here you are, in the exact right place, at the exact right time. The irony, of course, is that I do feel a touch out of place in the midst of this beautiful ceremony. For one, aside from the relative simplicity of the songs we sing together, I have no idea what any of these people are saying at any given moment. If it weren't for the assistance of various helpful translators, I'd be helpless to guess which god is being honored, which tradition invoked or adapted. Most casual conversations at this camp are naturally closed to me, being spoken in the native language, so... I spend many awkward moments in social groups, standing around like a mute and hapless third wheel. And the fact that I have a microphone in my hand doesn't make me any less conspicuous. Something people don't often speak about when they tell about their travels 
is how much of the experience of traveling is made up of loneliness. The feeling is important. Personally, one of my biggest fears remaining from childhood is that of not fitting in. In most places I went in Lithuania, it came up everywhere. Something I wasn't anticipating when I arrived in the city of Vilnius, for example, was the fact that people did not smile at me. Being from a small town in Canada, my foremost training has been that smiling is polite, and if you want to make people trust you, you smile at them, especially if they are a little old lady you are passing on the street. In Lithuania, to my constant embarrassment, this was very much not the case. For the first few weeks I was there, as far as I could tell, I frightened or offended every little old lady I saw with my intrusive grins and foolish greetings. Of course, as someone who travels alone often, I know these feelings of awkwardness are just part of the landscape, a small price to pay for the generosity that's offered to me in nearly every other moment when I'm welcomed again and again into a culture that's not my own. But I fear this story wouldn't be true if I didn't also share with you the hard parts, the discomforts, and strain, because those moments in particular are the fuel for all growth and learning in life. They are precisely the points of friction where a sacred fire might ignite. The next day, I'm introduced to a young priest of Ramava called Ignis Shatkauskas, who I recognize as the fellow who was playing the bagpipes at various moments in the Jolinus ritual the day before. And now we're going to the area which is beyond the swamp, the domain of that. He leads me across a small marsh to an old semi-abandoned farmhouse near the edge of the property, where he and his young friends camp every year during the festival. A very typical Lithuanian hut, which is already could be a museum. Are hundreds and hundreds of years people used to live in these wooden log houses with this type of stove. He doesn't require much prompting, but speaks passionately about his calling as a musician and as a priest of Ramava, and about how Lithuanian folk music helps him connect with his ancestors, with the land, and with his moral center. I begin by asking him how it was he became a priest of Ramava. Oh, you could say I was meant for this even before I was born. <laughs> My great-grandmother was already a big carrier of traditional songs and of, of ethnic wisdom, folklore, fairy tales, and so on. And many of these are recorded into the great book of songs of Lithuania, especially from my great-grandmother, and I... I actually remember her singing her in, in her village of Švenčionis, singing these songs, telling these fairy tales and kind of carrying on the tradition. 
her daughter and her daughter's daughter was my mother. <laughs> and so all of these women were carrying this tradition from one to the other. And my mother is, is uh, one of the head folklore organizers in Lithuania. She organizes the main main folklore festivals in Lithuania. So I was from my earliest, earliest childhood. I was always surrounded by old women, old folk singers from all of Lithuania. I was never baptized or, or I have not been touched by any other religions. So you can say I was like I was Romovian since my really since my birth. And mo the more I grew, the more I saw that I my place is in the nature. And that's where the sacred things are, where that that's the example of balance that we should strive for. Then I picked up bagpipe playing, which is traditional Lithuanian bagpipes called Labanoro bagpipes. And all of these uh, choices and turns in my life was really guiding me without even me conscious knowing. For example, picking up bagpipe was very important because it is a very spiritual instrument here. Uh, it is related to very mystical sides and to, to related to the souls and underworlds. And the purpose of this instrument is to guide the souls to the underworld. And as I picked it up, I didn't even know all these things. And slowly it just dawned on me as I was playing it. I was doing ceremonies and so on. And now I could tell you a bit more about this because it is one of the things that I do in this in this old camp, in this tradition. I am the piper. <laughs> this is my thing. He shows me the two parts of the Lithuanian bagpipe he plays that produce both the continuous drone and the varying melody. He explains how, working together, they embody a metaphor for much greater forces. This is that Labanoro bagpipe, which has their drones, the, 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 these that makes the sound, mm -hmm. the, the keynote and the melody pipe. It used to be made from goat skin, and it's mythologically related to goat, and the goat is sort of devilish and it's already directing you that that this instrument is the instrument of Valinus, the god of underworld. Probably most of bagpipes around the world have the same technique of having a drone note or more of them, but it, what is important that one side of the bagpipe is not you know, played with fingers and it, it gives a constant single note, which is the octavic harmonic note. And the other end is the melody flute. So you can play it with your fingers and, and do many variations. So it seems a simple build, and, uh, but as I played it, I started to unlock the deeper meanings of it. You know, as I did ceremonies and so on, it dawned on me that this is the two sides of existence. One side, the, the keynote, the drone note, is the ancestral side, which uh, symbolizes the past, the things have passed, the, the energies and our an ancestors that dwell in the realm of underworld, and their connection to us is their love. They constantly sing as a choir of ancestors in a single note of harmony, which is love. They give us the supporting note, the accompaniment to our, towards our today's melodies. And what we are today, we our times are the various times, there's many choices here. We can still choose this side or that, or be fated to do this or that. So, so this side of the bagpipe symbolizes today, but what is very important actually is, is this side is the ancestral side, 
because it is one the one that is a bit more covered you know it's a bit more hidden it's more monotonous you cannot really perceive it so easily but it's there and and this is very important because what it teaches uh, in life that there is some kind of a you know cooperation of harmonies he continues on telling me about how the unique lithuanian polyphonic singing style of sitartinas can be understood as an ancestral teaching as a model for ethical behavior. You saw, maybe you already heard, that we, uh, all of these people and, and Romuvians, they sing a lot of uh, songs, and Sutertines especially, these polyphonic songs. And I found out that they are also made in a very similar principle. You can also interpret that song in the same way as I interpret this instrument. There's usually one voice who gives support, singing more monotonic sounds, and the other voice is a soloist who is playing the main melody. So what it teaches us is also the same idea that the one who gives support to the leading singer, the one who is the accompanying singer, he has to sort of tune his ego down a bit so he would not sing too loud, he would not overwhelm the leading note, but be the proper support. So he has to a little bit forget himself and, you know, the desire to... Mm, prove himself to you know appear so cool and and you know show it it's show your voice to other people and see oh i'm such a great singer so you have to kind of keep it down a bit so that the leading voice could take the first stage you know and and you're supposed to be in the background but when the when the song changes you the next minute you already are the leading voice <laughs> so you have to step out and and give all of your energy as a leading voice, but at the, at the same time, not completely, you know, overwhelm the, the background. <laughs> so it's, it's constant change and there's a constant lesson of being, you know, not selfish. So it, even in such a simple, simple things as singing these polyphonic songs that is happening everywhere, everywhere here in this, in this tradition and in this camp, there's already some kind of morality, some kind of uh, special polytheistic Lithuanian morality that says that you must not forget the background of nature, the background of ancestors, because it gives you the harmony to exist. It gives you the, 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 that note, that resonant note that would make your life sound, you know, harmonic. here my motivation is that I come from a place where there are a lot of people who are interested in paganism and who are interested in tradition and there's very little resources for them very little tradition for them to draw on um, I'm talking about European descended yes. people specifically uh, and they often come from multiple mm -hmm. uh, places yeah. and they're far removed from like there's no their grandparents didn't necessarily sing anything to mm -hmm. them and like the podcast in general has been a process of trying to show them traditions that are intact and how people are, are using tradition when they don't have all of like a perfectly intact tradition, you know. But also I feel this question, people want guidance. They want to know how, how to build a tradition from, you know, scattered mm -hmm. remnants and, and loss in the sense of having no drone, no background. What is important in the revival is to get something something tangible like songs like dances 
from somewhere and start doing them. For example, if in Canada you 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 have a community or something, you have to you have to start at the same time have a, some kind of a folklore collective, which is representative of that community. Mm-hmm. Like for example, in Lithuania it was Romova. From the earliest times, they formed a band, a folk band, Kulgrinda. Mm-hmm. You heard them yesterday, and so on. So it's it's not only the big movement of many people of different, uh, you know, specialities and different walks of life, but there's also a music group of of that that folklore that is your spiritual music. Mm-hmm. And the the better you know this this group is, the more representative you get in in a wider public. And through that, you will get a lot of attention and attraction. And many people will come to your community because they see that your community produces like a quality folk music, which is not only folk music for fun, but folk music sung with purpose, with spiritual purpose. For example, in Lithuania, we have songs, especially, you know, oriented towards setting the sun. And the words are about setting sun and uh, about what people do when the sun is setting, and they're polyphonic and they go in a circle and sing that the sun is go sun is going in a circle. So they kind of involve sun in the same community as the people, and you know, as the sun goes in circles around some center of universe, uh, so we going around the circle of fire. So we involve the sun in the same dance. You know, we dance with the sun because we dance in a circle. When you do these songs and many ritual songs from many traditions, you will find these, the words of the song itself describes what you must do. And you have to just listen carefully to the words of these songs and they will basically guide your rituals. And you have to start doing them, you know, as you go on, on a hill and your sun is setting and you sing these songs for sun setting. And this makes you feel like much in such a community with the sun that you are really feeling why Lithuanians call sun mother, you know. Well, we are all blessed by mother sun. Our life exists because we have this wonderful star. And Lithuanians express this kinship, this closeness to the sun, this love that we feel to the sun and the love that we feel from the sun in the form of warmth and light. And and it's expressed in this um, metaphysical family, (laughs) It is it is understood that it's not like completely d- direct family, but it is a this wider worldview allow it allows to have these cosmic close relationships to, for example, planets and sun and 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 stars and so on, because we always think that the moon is my father and sun is my mother and stars are our sisters. So there is always some kind of message that you can take and apply to your life, and and and. To, to use it as some kind of a guideline towards your behavior. And th- th- all of that is nicely enveloped in, in this f- story about the, the eternal and cosmic union, the eternal family. This, everything is in the same community, in the same family, and dancing around the same sun, around the same fire. 
and when you're doing that dance that feeling you know is 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 lifted up and that just takes you over and that's when you really feel the sacred feeling that that really kind of religious experience of unity with with cosmos Ignis's firm faith in his ancestry, his unquestioned connection to the land he inhabits and the ancestors he inherited it from, echoes what I've heard often from other members of Ramava, that this land and their historic ethnic identity, specifically how that identity is expressed through music, is what gives their lives both guidance and meaning. Who am I? Someone might ask. Listen to the old songs. Ramava would respond. And how should I behave? Sing the old songs, Ramava would respond, and you'll understand. The idea that song is a source of learning and of social influence is key to the ethos of Ramava and of Baltic paganism in general, I think. As Ignis mentions, if you are trying to start a reconstructed religion, the first thing you must do is to find a source text, an inspiration on which to build your practices. In the case of Ramava, one of those main building blocks is music. And it's not only a building block for the practices of the group, it's also a key element in recruitment. Ramava's high priestess Inia is also the leader of the pagan folk group called Kulgrinda, who play folk songs in traditional Lithuanian and sometimes Slavic styles some originally pagan, many adapted to suit the needs of Ramava's ritual practices, paganized, or in some cases, re-paganized songs. In fact, Kulgrinda's musical performances at festivals and other events are often billed as rituals. Having attended some of these events, I've noticed that an interesting quirk of perception occurs, that it's hard to tell where the ritual begins and where the performance ends and the aesthetic appeal of pagan ritual wrapped in ancient music in Iron Age garb is undeniable. I have to admit it's one of the main reasons I'm here. One still and overcast afternoon later in the week, my curiosity about the role of music in Ramava's ritual practices leads me to join a group of people, young and old, at a row of weather-worn picnic tables under the apple trees at the center of camp. I'm hoping I might learn a little about how to sing the famous and complex sutartinus mentioned by Ignas and hailed as one of the oldest forms of song in the Lithuanian tradition. As the song circle gets going, I do in fact get to try out some sutartinus and a number of other songs to boot.
as we cycle through folk songs, I notice a repeating phrase in more than one of the songs we're singing. The words, Kelkis, Kelkis. And it occurs to me there is a theme to the songs we're singing, though I can't yet discern exactly what it is. I ask a few English-speaking friends to explain, and they tell me the word kelkis means arise or wake up, and it's a common feature of war songs, some of them from the Partisan War, an insurgence against the bloody and oppressive Soviet occupation of Lithuania that happened in the mid-20th century. Countless folk songs were created in this era, many of them expressing mourning and a deep despair at the departure of young men who are unlikely to return home. I recalled from the information I received about the camp originally that the overall theme of this year is the figure called Vitus, an armed medieval knight on a white horse, which appears on Lithuania's coat of arms and represents Lithuanian resistance to foreign invasion and influence. It was an outlawed image during the Soviet era and was reinstated in 1988 when Lithuania gained its independence. The founder of Ramava, Janus Trinkinus, has argued that the figure on horseback originates in a representation of Percunus, the Lithuanian god of thunder. I was curious why these rather political folk songs about war and nationalism would be sung in a pagan context like this one, so I asked Vilma Mare, a Lithuanian-American I met at the camp, to explain. So the goal of this um, particular song circle is to learn old songs and to be active and continue the tradition of song writing within the rhythm and within the mentality of what we are given already. We still are in the historic moment of uncertainty. Romuva is considered underground as religion. We do care about its legalization. So um, my way is saying, let's continue this song saying that wake up sun and either work or, or towards realizing or towards bringing this religion to the sunlight. Um, we, this is not only Catholic country. This is the country of old traditions and they were not wiped out, neither with force nor with uh, aggression. So that's, that's the way. That's the way to be active with the song. The next day, I'm sitting on the grass in the sun, under an oak, watching a blacksmithing demonstration when Inia Trinkunene, the high priestess of Ramava, emerges from her summer house 
and invites me inside for an interview, which was my initial purpose for coming here to Ramava camp. I follow her inside the house, into her front room, whose whitewashed wood walls are full of books about European and Baltic folklore and mythology. We sit facing one another across the wood table, and she tells me about the origins of Ramava, and how the thousands of Lithuanian folk songs provide a basis for their religious practices. As concerns uh, Romova as a religious community, it was registered in 1992, official registration. So now we have 26 years of, of our official registration, but it was impossible during this Soviet regime because the Soviets didn't allow any religious, only Catholic Church and Orthodox Church had some some rights to to exist, but not not others. So for me, when if you ask about the power of an ancient tradition, of religion tradition or cultural tradition, of course, one thing is that Lithuania was Christianized the last in Europe. And so therefore, we had very very large cultural heritage and the religion, ancient religion is a part of it. Also, we have, uh, um, when, to when talking about the Christian influence, so I can say that only in 17th or 18th century, the church became Lithuanized. It was Polish church before. So, and it has very few influence on Lithuanians because nobody understands. Only nobles, we are speaking Polish. And uh, where we are going in church, is understanding nothing. And so uh, they still, in their homes, we are keeping their own uh, traditions and both religious traditions. And um, if we are talking about culture and religion, of course, everybody understands that religion is part of, of culture and is the main part of culture. And so in ancient times, we are almost no division as we now understand that there is religion and this is uh, other things. And in ancient times, it was integrated integrated. So when you are doing some work, you you pray, for instance, you are going for a harvest or something, you, you pray to Mother Earth, and in uh, every, every movement, every action, every work, it was led by re uh, religious meaning, it had religious meaning. But in Lithuania, this influence of Christianity it starts. It started only in 17, 18 centuries. Of course, our sacred fires we um, stopped. Yes, yeah. stopped and so on. It was forbidding all these things, but still, still, uh, what was uh, in people's life, ordinary life, it still was left. And. Um, also, for me, what is uh, important, how I can feel this spirit, this ancient spirit and religious spirit, of course, in our singing tradition. Mm -hmm. 
which is very old and it um, it maintains the same it is the same we can say that okay we don't know exactly the rituals ancient and so on and so on and how the priests uh, did in ancient times but we have this power of of our songs of our chants which everybody can feel and it, for, for us it's very important and I, I think that so that we can be proud of it that we have so so when when you choose songs for for using in ritual how do you which how do you choose which kinds of songs you want to use Mm. It's a very general question. It's very general, and it's, you know, it's a a long story and a a long journey. It depends on what occasion it is. There are a lot of calendar uh, songs left, calendar festival songs. For instance, if you, when we celebrate winter solstice, we have huge amount of songs, huge amount. We can only sing these songs and it's it will be a festival, yes. And also the same in the whole cycle of year. So uh, there is a lot of mythology and a lot of, of symbolic in these uh, songs. So, so it's um, very widespread. Then the, the second one yeah. is um, family, family festivals. Yeah. Mm, we also have uh, songs in uh, during uh, occasions with uh, child blessing or wedding and funeral. So we have special songs. Um, the only thing that we lack that that the names of gods mentioned in the songs mm-hmm. they are few but not not a lot mm-hmm. so there is some kind of reconstruction mm-hmm. but it's very very common to all folk tra- folklore traditions in Lithuania for instance we have almost a million of songs and there are some songs with uh, one one tune, one melody, and there are one melody and several um, and different words. Yeah. Yeah. So it's common that you uh, take one melody or one tune and you sing. The text is is different. And I saw you were doing that um, with with people at the camp. You're ma- you're working for Kulgrinda yeah, on a new yeah. songs. Yes. Um, about the theme of this camp, yeah? Yes, it can, uh, the songs which are connected with the theme of, of this uh, camp, yes. Um, so what do you think is the, the future of Romava? What's, what's happening next? I know that you're working next. on lots of things. <laughs> next? Okay, so we, we um, as far as you know, I don't know if you know at all, but uh, there is division in Lithuania of religion communities in three levels. Mm-hmm. First level, highest level, 
uh, is so-called acknowledged by state traditional communities. So there are Christians, Orthodox, some uh, Muslims, and so on. And uh, the second level is acknowledged by state, not traditional communities. There are several. And this third level is uh, not acknowledged by state, not traditional communities. So we belong to the lowest level, our community. But now, as according to the law, as far as we have 25, now 26 years, we are applying for beyond the second level, which gives us right to um, be our our rituals, our our weddings and um, weddings officially recognized, mm-hmm. and also we have will have. Um, right to go to schools to share our our religion uh, and so on so so um this this year for us uh, is is very important because we already started this procedure so and we ho- hope that the final voting will happen in maybe in october or a little bit later and the, I will get the positive answer. Having now heard Inia, Vilma, and others speak about Romava's desire to be officially acknowledged as a religion by the Lithuanian state, it occurs to me that there is something definitive about Lithuanian paganism, and Romava in particular, that I couldn't quite put my finger on until that point. Modern Lithuanian paganism, since the Soviet era, is innately political. The deep wound of Soviet occupation in Lithuania is still fresh, and its mark can be seen on the landscape in the form of aging apartment buildings and abandoned factories. The fact that ethnic Lithuanians make up the majority of the population here, combined with the country's sustained history of resistance to nearly continuous invasion, occupation, and genocide of ethnic Lithuanians, makes nationalism somewhat of a no-brainer, the virtue a stronghold against the forces of evil and chaos in this country. So if I understand correctly, Ramava is an ethnic religion tending towards nationalism. By contrast, in the multicultural country of Canada where I grew up, ethnicity has no natural connection to religious or civic identity, especially since the state itself is a colonial construct to begin with, a product of British imperialism. Ethnic nationalism in Canada would be a very bad thing. In Lithuania, it's a totally different story. The picture returns to my mind of the knight from the coat of arms, brandishing his sword, his white horse charging. The white knight is a symbol of a tradition that must be defended to survive. And though I was invited to this camp, and by the high priestess herself, I can't help but feel that I must represent 
at least to some, the outsider that has threatened Lithuanian paganism since its revival, even since the Crusades of the Middle Ages. And of course, in this place, in this context, I am not supposed to belong. It simply isn't about me, nor about what I need. I'm simply here to learn, to observe. But, if I'm honest, I'm not just here to be an objective observer of traditional culture and pagan practice. I'm here because, just like many people of my generation, I want to know how to recover the lost knowledge of the past. I want to know how to do paganism. As Ignis so elegantly expressed, traditional knowledge is most at home in community and on the land, where it produces right relationship, where it fosters a sense of belonging and mutual responsibility. But this week I spent observing these passionate rituals, witnessing these profound expressions of affinity and secure belonging to place and community, has shown me something in myself I hadn't noticed before. I'm beginning to see my own rather remote and mixed European ethnicity, which until now had appeared pretty neutral to me, as a painful sort of spiritual homelessness, a dislocation I wasn't sure how even to begin to heal and larger questions began to trouble my mind. If, as I'm hearing here, paganism is in fact about belonging to a people and to a place, what about those pagans who don't strongly identify with any one nation or ethnicity, or even with any? Where do they belong? Where do I belong as one of them? This concludes part one of Children of the Sun, Paganism, and Folk Song in Lithuania. In the second half of this episode, I'll learn some more of the ways Lithuanian folklorists and pagans are working to preserve and reanimate a past that threatens to disappear with each passing day. I get further insight into the kinship between tradition, song, and land, and what healing it might bring, not just for Lithuanians, but for spiritual seekers all over, whoever or wherever we may be.